With every story we hear, listen to, read, or tell, we make basic human connections that help define who we are. Welcome to Afterwards Paranormal, the podcast devoted to those stories that tell us who we are when we're in the dark. Listen closely now. The dark is speaking, and the need to be heard never dies. Afraid of the dark? After all, it isn't afraid of you. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to episode 77 of Afterwards Paranormal. I'm your host, Shelby. This episode is dedicated to creepiness. Yes, creepiness. That delightful tingle of fear and uncertainty that sips up your spine like an unwanted snake. Our story for this episode is Stolen Kisses by Michael Marshall Smith. It's a romantic tale of unrequited love. It will thrill you with little creepies, and at the end you'll go, Personally, I like being startled, disturbed, and creeped out by the supernatural. But those states of unease are all different levels of, Ah! What do you find creepy, and how does it differ from other levels of terror? Linda Rodriguez-McRobbie wrote an article on just that. Titled, On the Science of Creepiness, Miss McRobbie delves into the science of what we call the creeps. Here are some excerpts from the article. It's the spider crawling up the wall next to your bed. Someone knocking at your door late at night. The guy who stands just a bit too close to you on the subway and for a bit too long. Hello, Barbie, with embedded Wi-Fi and Siri-like capabilities. They have that? Yikes. Masks with no face. Dolls. Overgrown graveyards. Clowns. Dolls. I have to confess, I added more than one reference to D-O-L-L-S. As with the Supreme Court standard for obscenity, we know creepy when we see it, or perhaps more accurately, feel it. But what is it exactly? Why do we experience the creeps? Is being creeped out useful to the human experience, or is it something to avoid? Though the sensation has probably been around since human beings began, it wasn't until the middle of the 19th century that we got an actual name for it. Charles Dickens is credited with the first use of using the phrase the creeps, in his 1849 novel, David Copperfield. It meant an unpleasant, tingly chill up the spine. Mrs. Gummidge, a character in the novel, was constantly complaining of the cold and of its occasioning a visitation in her back, which she called the creeps. In the years after the book's publication, using creepy to describe something that causes unease became popular. The sensation of being creeped out has been little studied by psychologists. Frank McAndrew, a professor of psychology at Knox College in Illinois, is one of the few. In 2013, 
he and a graduate student, Sarah Conkey, presented a paper based on the results of a survey that asked more than 1,300 people, how do you define creepy? Based on the results of the survey, Dr. McAndrew explained, creepy is the word people use to describe a feeling of uncertainty about the possibility of a threat. The survey subjects felt uneasy because they thought there might be something to worry about, but the signals were not clear enough to warrant either fight or flight. Being creeped out is different from fear or revulsion, he says. In both of those emotional states, the person experiencing them usually feels no confusion about how to respond. But when you're creeped out, your brain and your body are telling you that something is not quite right, and you'd better pay attention. The stimulus can be things, situations, places, and of course people. Most creepy research has examined what makes other people seem creepy. For example, a 2012 study exposed people to others who didn't practice, quote, normal, nonverbal behavior. The results were interesting. In the experiment, subjects interacted with research assistants who never interacted with them physically or verbally. Instead, they practiced degrees of subtle mimicry. When a test subject scratched her head, for instance, the research assistant would do something similar, such as touch his nose. Not being able to determine the reason for the odd behavior of the researchers made the subjects very uneasy. The result was that the subjects indeed felt creeped out. Some of the test subjects even felt an actual chill up their spine. Perhaps the biggest predictor of whether someone is considered creepy was the unpredictability of how an unusual person was going to act. So much of what is creepy is about wanting to predict what's going to happen, and that's why the unusual or, quote, non-normal behaviors of people creep us out, because they are unexpected and unpredictable. McAndrews explained, noting that the 2012 study also seemed to underscore that point. We find it hard to know what they're going to do next. Most of these norms are established by whatever a society decides is, quote, normal and can vary from culture to culture. The creepy factor in people can also be attributed to what they do for a living. However, unfairly, taxidermists and funeral directors were deemed among the creepiest professions listed in McAndrews and Conkey's survey. This is likely because these people routinely interact with things that most people would avoid, like dead bodies. If you're dealing with someone who's really interested or works with dead things, that sets off alarm bells. Because if they're different in that way, in what other unpleasant ways might they be different, says McAndrew. By far the creepiest profession, according to the survey, was being a clown. Clowns by nature are unpredictable and difficult to fathom. Makeup disguises their features and facial cues, and they typically do things outside the norm, such as give unexpected hugs or act overly friendly. More often than not, it's the normal-looking clowns that creep me out. The scary ones have already shown me what they are. The normal clowns could morph at any moment. Creepy these days is often used to describe anything that has the potential to be used for evil. But creepiness also relies heavily on context. A doll on a child's bed isn't creepy. The child chose to put it there. But a strange doll found on your doorstep that looks exactly like your own child is a different thing altogether. 
if the lights flicker on and off whenever your sixth grade teacher enters the room, if your child's eyes start to glow green and their head spins around, or your chihuahua begins to float up the stairs. The potential creepy list goes on and on. McAndrew believes that there's an evolutionary advantage to feeling creeped out, one that's in line with the evolutionary psychology theory of agency detection. Human beings are inclined to seek out patterns in any sensual stimuli. This is why we see faces in toast or hear voices in running water. Our lizard brain is trying to make sense of what we are sensing, just in case it wants to eat us. When our brains can't make logical, expected sense of what we are or are not experiencing, the fight-or-flight response is triggered. McAndrew adds, Our ancestors saw a saber-toothed tiger in every shadow and a slithering snake in the motion of the swaying grass because it was better to be safe than sorry. Our primitive brain is still looking for any and all dangers. It just wants to keep us safe. A creeped-out level of response is a result of always being wary, but in modern society it is tempered by not overreacting. We don't want to seem impolite or suspicious or jump to the wrong conclusions, so we tread carefully. New person in the neighborhood? Tread politely, but carefully. In other words, accept their offer of cookies, but wait until they've taken their first bite of one to taste yours. Werewolf in the neighborhood? Run like hell. Honor those inner feelings of stranger danger. We need to honor those societal designations. Let's face it, there's at least a little part of us that likes to be creeped out. There are more than 50 podcasts like Afterwards Paranormal that present scary content. There are over 2,700 haunted attractions in the United States. Somewhere between 450 and 800 horror films are released annually in the U.S. and Canada, and the number increases every year. McAndrew points out that truly creepy things and situations are not attractive, not even a little bit. We don't enjoy real creepy situations, and we will avoid them like the plague. McAndrew stated, Like, if there's a person who creeps you out, you'll cross the street to get away. What we do enjoy is play-acting, in the same way we enjoy the vicarious thrills of watching a horror movie. Stephen King, in his 1981 exploration of the horror genre, stated that horror films are a safe place for us to explore our fears and rehearse what we would do if, say, zombies tore apart our town. Okay, Stephen, I'll start taking survival notes during all the horror films I watch. Good safety tip. The same thing that keeps us tense and attentive in truly creepy situations is not unlike what keeps us moving, shrieking, and shaking through a Halloween haunted house. It's going to trigger a lot of things that scare and startle you, but deep down you know there's no danger, McAndrew says. You can have all the creepy biological sensations without any real risk. And there's something important and fun about that defanged kind of horror. True but I run at full speed and embrace the fanged kind of horror as well.
Hello? Anybody home? You are listening to Afterwards Paranormal, the podcast that offers you dark tales from literature, lore, and you, the listener. If you're interested in contributing stories to the show, please stay tuned after the story for details. me of something, I'd like to ask you for a favor. If you like this podcast, and you know someone else who would like this podcast, please share it with them. We want our library patron numbers to grow and grow. Thank you. I found our story for this episode in the Spectral Book of Horror Stories, Kindle Edition. Mark Morris is the editor and is published by Spectral Press. Michael Marshall Smith's work includes the straw man thrillers, now in television development, modern science fiction classics like Only Forward, winner of the Philip K. Dick Award, and Spares, along with Intruders, televised by BBC America. Intruders starred Mira Sorvino and John Sim and introduced Miss Millie Bobby Brown whom you might know from Stranger Things. He is the only author to have won the BFS Short Story Award four times. You can find out more about him and his works at www.michaelmarshallsmith.com. The Spectral Book of Horror Stories also features stories from authors Ramsey Campbell, Allison Littlewood, Gary McMahon, Lisa Tuttle, Stephen Volk, Conrad Williams, Tom Fletcher, John Llewellyn Probert, Helen Marshall, Nicholas Royal, Rio Yours, Allison Moore, Angela Slatter, Stephen Laws, and Robert Shearman. I've read most of the stories, and they definitely span the range of horror, from a light tickle to ash. Please check it out if you feel so inclined. And now, Stolen Kisses by Michael Marshall Smith. Well, yes, okay, if you want to call it stealing, then I guess I did steal him from her. But I didn't hear him complaining, okay? The man did not put up a fight at any point. And stealing's a strange word anyhow when it comes to emotions and relationships, don't you think? Stealing says you took something that belonged to someone else. But a person is not a thing, and so I don't see how he or she can belong to anyone. A person is not property. Okay, they were in fact married. Yes, I know that. God, don't I know it. I was one of the first she showed the big-ass ring to, duh. I was at the wedding, ringside seat. I bought that girl a huge set of premium bakeware to show just how cool I was with the whole thing. Because if your best friend gets married, that's what you do, even though you know she doesn't deserve the guy and she's got him under some kind of frickin' spell. Okay, not an actual spell. She was very pretty. Still is. I get that. And she was all, let's have a family right now. And he was totally into that. But so was I, or I was going to be when the time came. We were only 20 years old, for God's sake. It was way too early. 
Like insane, right? Who gets married at 20 these days? This isn't the Middle Ages. I figured we'd all hang out together a few more years, and he'd get around to asking me out on a date when everyone's oats had been duly sown, and it was time to pick a lane and start cooking up the next generation so they could go out and make the mistakes we hadn't even finished making yet ourselves. But I figured wrong. I had figured wrong, I finally realized, drunk as a skunk at that stupid wedding, watching their first dance, grinning and clapping along like everybody else. Because, in fact, he'd never been thinking of me at all. I'd assumed too much. I'd read between lines that turned out had not even been there. But we'd hung out a lot. We talked all the time. We laughed. We really got each other. How could I not think that he'd realized that I was more fun and a lot smarter than Lisa could ever be? I assumed he'd understand that there was a pure connection between him and me, something real and deep and strong, and it was only a matter of letting it mature. In the meantime, I played the field, sure. I had my times, and some of them were good. But then, boom, suddenly they're married, and it dawned on me way too late that all my good times had just been about marking time. It had always really been about him. I know most women might think, huh, well, that's the end of that at this point, but I am not most women. For a while, I let it be, of course, and you know what? That was me being nice. I figured that if they'd done the thing, if he'd gone down on one knee and she said yes, and they'd strutted down the aisle and he declared I'd do in front of pretty much everyone in town, I had to let it ride. I owed it to him, my love. If it turned out he was blissfully happy, then I'd let it be. I'm not someone who wants to bring sadness into the world unnecessarily. Sure, I was pissed. I was miserable. I'd been in love with the guy since eighth grade. I'd had him in mind all along, and I'd assumed, hoped, whatever, taken for granted, I guess, that we'd been following signs leading us up the same road. I was bitterly frickin' sad to find myself now walking up that path by myself. I was not heartbroken, though, because I know nothing's over until the fat lady sings, and no overweight woman had yet sung. So we all stayed friends. Why wouldn't we? She'd been my BFF since forever and had no idea I wanted her man. He didn't either, evidently. So we rubbed along. We hung out. For years, I watched the two of them building a life together, step by step. They rented an apartment. Then they bought a house and furniture. The cars they drove got bigger and bigger. They graduated from thrift store in Ikea to crate and barrel and restoration hardware. Her clothes got fancier and upper arms heavier unlike mine. Her clothes got fancier and upper arms heavier, unlike mine. They stopped having keg parties and started throwing dinner parties instead. They kept ticking boxes. But there were no kids. Lisa talked to me about it a lot, the troubles they were having. The doctors said it was likely her fault, though they couldn't be sure. I thought the doctors were most likely right, though I kept the opinion to myself. In the meantime, I watched them get older saw the lines that started to appear around his eyes. I thought about telling him that I could kiss them away if he'd let me with a hundred stolen kisses. But I did not. I waited. For the time being, she still had a lock on his love. 
but I knew my time would come, and that I would not hesitate when the moment arrived. And I did not. So I stole my best friend's husband. Yes. I do not feel bad about it, and I never will. I know she's hurting now, but that's an unfortunate side of the situation. Collateral damage. And I stand by saying there's no such thing as stealing when it comes to the heart. There is no God looking down on us like some bearded super cop watching to see if we break his laws. Those laws are not even real. They're only in our heads. And even if there is a God, then I truly believe that he wishes us to be happy above all else. If two people are going out or living together or whatever, and one decides to be with someone else, that's not stealing, is it? So why should it be stealing just because they were married? Stolen is nothing but a word, and if a man's happier being held by you than he ever was in her arms, then it's not the right word to use. I look at him now, and I know that's how it is. He tells me he loves me every day and every night. There's joy on his lips when we kiss. I know he's better with me in every way, so much happier with me, that the years we lost were a mistake, and it was her fault for being too fast, and mine for being too slow. I loved him first, after all. In fact, if you look at it one way, it was actually her who stole him from me. All I did was put it right. Maybe you disagree, but what's done is done. Yes, I took a man from another woman, and if you want to call that stealing, then okay. I stole. My bet is that she'll get over it in a year, but I don't really care. The bottom line is that she never deserved him, and the evidence was plain to see. He'd been buried in the ground three months before I brought him home, and the lacy horror hadn't even gotten around to putting up a stone. Well, that just goes to show that if you can't be with the one you love, go dig them up. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Afterwards Paranormal. I've been your host, Shelby. And as always, I leave the last words for you. Thank you for listening to Afterwards Paranormal Podcast. Please join us on Patreon and Facebook. You can listen to Afterwards Paranormal on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Contact us at afterwardsstories at gmail.com. And remember, the need to be heard never dies. Thank you.